0: You see that far? Yeah. <laughs> There's no way right. I can do it. Yep. Okay, so let's talk about jealousy described in the notes. When, when God renews the covenant with Moses in Exodus 38, 10 through 20, and he tells him he's a jealous God. In the same verse, he goes to the extent of affirming that jealous is an appropriate personal name for himself. Is it? Oh, working? Can we put it on? Um, he says, uh, for you shall not worship any other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a Jealous God. This is the reason that God gives for having no other gods before him, to not worship other gods. He says, this is why, because Yahweh, whose name is Jealous, is a Jealous God. So we want to comprehend what it is that he's laying out for us. Um... There's two things we really see displayed in this... You can can actually make more categories, but I think we can fit it all down into two things. His jealousy is for His own honor, or for His glory. We'll talk about that. And for the faithfulness of those with whom He has a covenant relationship. So it would be for the faithfulness of Israel, or uh, under the new covenant, the faithfulness of the church. So... Boiling down all of it, the Bible is going to talk about jealousy for His name, which would be um, equivalent to saying His character, which would be very similar to saying for His glory or His honor. So I think most of the, the ways we'll see this concept used will boil down to those two things. Jealousy for His honor, jealousy for the faithfulness of those with whom He has a covenant relationship. Um, So when we see a violation, if there's a violation of this relationship, it is met with uh, the strong emotional response of jealousy, uh, which results with wrath, right? Either the outpouring of God's wrath or some form of restorative action, meaning uh, some type of judgment that brings... Uh, people back into life brings the nation of Israel back in life see it a number of times working our way through the Old Testament most of the biblical reference sources provide good general definitions of jealousy uh, and acknowledge a possibility of a positive sense for it obviously we also have to coincide the concept of the jealousy of God with God's goodness with the other attributes of God it's not, it not stand alone none of the attributes are So they've all got to fit together with one another. We look at the Hebrew and the Greek words, uh, the Hebrew kina and the Greek Zelos, both translated most often as jealousy, but can also be translated zeal, envy, ardor, emulation. Um, So one of the things I want to encourage us as we look through, and one of the traps I fall into often, and I want to encourage you guys hopefully not to is we, we want to be able to look not only for the word and the way the words used but we don't want to make the word the trail because sometimes there can be a concept spoken or taught about the jealousy of God where the word jealousy is never used case in point uh Hosea the word jealousy never comes up in the book of Hosea does that book describe jealousy Hosea takes a prostitute as a wife who's unfaithful to him, runs away. God has him go and redeem her. And then you have the prophetic uh, uh, utterance that comes from Hosea about the the situation between God and his wife, the nation of Israel. The picture is, but the word jealous doesn't come up, but the concept is there, right? The concept is there in the things they're being taught. So so I want to encourage us with that and also to be looking for and comprehending that God is not like us. And Part of our biggest problem with God, most often, is we want to make Him like us. And so if, if jealous, our experience of jealousy is some kind of a of a petty, uh, um, I don't know, insecurity that has no basis in fact, that's not what the jealousy that God's talking about. God's not talking about that crazy husband or the crazy wife who is irrationally jealous of her or his spouse for no reason. And a lot of times when people consider the jealousy of God, we're going to see it when we look through the notes and we discuss some of the things. They are going to try to define it by our experience with jealousy, not by what God's Word is teaching us about jealousy. So remember, our, our final arbiter in understanding what God has revealed to us and what God's giving us. Our final arbiter is to go to his word and what's there. What is his word telling us? How is it described? What are the examples? Okay. And so we'll get an opportunity to look at some of those, um, today. Um, the other thing is, uh, uh, we want to see, uh, for God, his jealous response is based on his love. Um, for his people love that he expects to be reciprocated by them the love God expects from his people is not only an emotional response but also necessarily results in obedient behavior when a person experiences godly jealousy as a passionate consuming zeal focused on God that results in doing his will maintaining his honor uh, in the face of ungodly or of the ungodly acts of men and nations, and we'll see that example as we kind of move forward. So let's uh, let's kind of let's try to define jealousy. Uh, certainly, scripturally, I think it works uh, otherwise as well. But it is the ardent desire to maintain exclusive devotion within a relationship in the face of a challenge to that exclusive devotion. That's jealous to the ardent desire to maintain exclusive devotion within a relationship uh, in the face of a challenge to that exclusive devotion. Uh, Four things that we see, uh, well, one, two, three, four, five, six. I can't count. Five things that we're going to see requirements of jealousy to be present. First, a lover or a person for whom the desire is for this exclusive devotion. Uh, Beloved, the other person. A rival, someone who's trying to steal the affection of. Uh, infidelity expressed in some way to the beloved. So there's unfaithfulness. And then a, a emotional response to that infidelity. When we study scripture and we look at this, how many times when we look through the prophets, Old Testament prophets, does God use um, <laughs> metaphors of sexual relations between a husband and a wife? Um, I'm trying to think. With probably Daniel, I'm trying to think of prophets where he doesn't use the sexual metaphor. There are not very many. So there are, more often than not, when God talks about his people, he, de- he describes them in, in those ways. As an unfaithful wife. As someone who is out um, um, cheating on him. Well, we don't have a hard time understanding the wrongness of that 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 kind of fits in our understanding so so hopefully we can build on that um the covenant and metaphors of sexual relations father-son relationships marriage relationships are common in the biblical expressions of jealousy bible understands jealousy is a very powerful emotion uh proverb 27 4 says wrath is fierce and anger is a flood who can stand before jealousy uh, next, I wanted to dev- define some of the terms that we're going to see uh, so that we can understand kind of how the Bible sees them. Next, zeal, an ardent desire to see a particular result come about. This emotion differs from jealousy in that it is a much less specific desire. Zeal is the most general of the translations when it uses the uh, defining the words that we discussed earlier that, that are defined as jealousy. This emotion is clearly evident in Nehemiah three twenty. Baruch, the son of Zabai, zealously repaired another section from the angle to the doorway of the house of Eliashib the high priest. So, the zealousness is more more general term um, than the concept of jealousy. Jealousy specifically is relational; requires there to be a relation, uh, a relationship. Envy is the ardent desire to gain possession of something that you don't have. It's not yours. This emotion differs from jealousy in that it is never godly. It is, uh, uh, is not necessarily a relational emotion. I can be envious of someone I don't have a relationship with. Um, or envious of inanimate objects. The object desired is not the possession of the one experiencing the emotion. Uh, While jealousy desires the protection of something possessed, envy is the resentful desire to possess something not currently possessed. Envy never carries positive connotation. Malicious envy, the ardent desire to gain possession of something not currently possessed, and to deny it to the current possessor. This is a specially evil form of envy. The desire to emulate, a positive desire to gain possession of a trait or ability from another. Uh, Right? The Bible says imitate Christ or imitate God as dear children. Um, The idea of, of emulation is to aspire to be like someone in a particular characteristic while not wanting to deny him of that characteristic. You're not trying to suck it out of them so they can't have it. But you're just trying to follow that example and express it. Covetousness. Selfish, inordinate, desire to gain wealth or possessions. Resentment. A feeling of indignant, displeasure, or persistent ill will at something regarded as a wrong, insult, or injury. That's from Webster. Resentment often uh, accompanies these other emotions of possession. Um, it, it ends up being a, a result of what's going on. Honor. Uh, Respect, esteem, or devotion shown one as his due or claimed by one as a right. This concept is related to jealousy because often honor is the key relational element that is denied when jealousy is aroused. Indignation. Uh, This is particularly righteous indignation. Anger aroused uh, by something unjust, unworthy, or mean vengeance or revenge punishment inflicted in retaliation for an injury or offense devotion the fact or state of being ardently dedicated and loyal as to an idea or a person and ambition an ardent desire for rank fame and power just kind of want to define some of the things that we're going to be talking about so you can say what does jackie mean by that okay it's right there so hopefully that is helpful now, in, when we talk about jealousy, we also have to deal with contemporary views of jealousy, right? Remember, one of the things, one of the battles is to recognize God's not like us. And, and uh, so we want to understand how God has revealed himself. It's God telling us who he is, not us telling God who he is. So, so we have to allow God the opportunity to do that. Well, here's some contemporary views of jealousy, In spite of considerable emphasis on the jealousy of God and godly human jealousy in the Bible, the common understanding of jealousy in the secular and Christian realms is mostly negative. A survey of the relevant literature shows relatively little written on the subject. Uh, When it is dealt with in secular literature, jealousy is often seen as a main cause of wife abuse and is generally considered a destructive, primitive emotion for God or mankind to exhibit. Because jealousy is primarily seen as a result of personal and relational insecurity, it is assumed that a God who is jealous must therefore be insecure. Thus, the jealousy of God correlates with the insecurity of His chosen people. A good example of the disdain for divine jealousy can be seen in Gerald Ringer's um, article on contemporary spirituality. It's the report from Far meridian Yahweh, the God of the Fireball, where he blames the idea of divine jealousy for much of the destruction in history, including the dropping of the atom bomb. Here's, this is from his book. In a balance of terror maintained by nuclear arsenals, the jealousy of God and the insecurity of people together induce structural instability. Yahweh, whether under the banner of Adam Smith or Karl Marx, remains a jealous God of the fireball of righteous wrath. Uh, Ringer believes that the repression of the of the matrix sensitivity to mercy and the idea of the jealousy of God are responsible for nuclear destruction, he believed loomed on the horizon. For Ringer, uh, and most people in our culture today, the idea of a wrathful, jealous God is an unutterable horror. So we have to kind of do battle with that concept when we consider... What jealousy is? Um, so we want to understand it. Now they brought up a point. One of the points that uh, that they brought up was this idea of insecurity. Oh, they're insecure. They're insecure, um, and that can be brought out in a couple of different ways. But uh, I think what the scripture is laying out for us is meaningful relationships are meaningful because they're based on what's real. Perception matters. What do I mean? If I came, I'm going to use Jason for everything tonight just because he got me shaved. So that's how it's going to work. (laughs) So if I said to Jason, you know, Jason, I want to have a relationship with you, but I I really have a hard time um, getting along with men. Most of the time in my life, I I find it much easier to get along uh, with women than I do with men. So in order to help me have this relationship with you, um, you know, your name Jason's a problem for me, so it's it's much too masculine a term, uh, so i would I would like to call you Josephine. That'd be okay with you. and uh, I really would like to relate to you as though I was relating to a woman. That would be all right, you okay? Oh, okay, so that's you're you're opposed to the idea? I think you should be, but why? My question is why is jason would jason be opposed to that idea is it because he's insecure in his masculinity because a lot in the world today would say well you're insecure in your masculinity if you were secure in your masculinity it wouldn't matter my perception of you would not matter but remember what i said earlier meaningful uh, relationships are meaningful because they're based in reality and if it's based in reality my perception of jason matters Let's make it a little more ridiculous, Jason. And I really struggle with relationships with humans, but I get along great with dogs. So I would just like to treat you like a dog, and instead of shaking your hand, I want I want to rub your belly and tickle your neck uh, because I find that I it's it much easier for me to relate with dogs. You'd be any oh, you be okay with that? Well, if he said that, he probably would be okay with that, but. But the reason, why, the reason why that doesn't make any sense, some people might say, if we use the same argumentation, you would say, well, he's insecure in his humanity. Because if he was secure in his humanity, it wouldn't matter if I treated him like a human or a dog. Now, both of those arguments are arguments that are used today in a variety of ways. By the way, there are people today who walk around and say they're a dog. Once upon a time was a joke, especially when homosexuality, uh, marriage became a reality. But uh, they are they are here today. They want to be treated as a dog, want to wear a collar, want to be taken for a walk. Um, but in order to have a meaningful relationship, in order for it to be meaningful, it has to be based in reality. In other words, my perception, for me and Jason to have the best relationship, my perception of him needs to be who he is. Now we can have a relationship because it's, it's Jason. We can have the kind of relationship that we want to have it 's not about petty insecurity it 's about what's real, what is real. When we talk about when we, when we talk about the fact that God is jealous for his honor, there's the, the concept one god 's insecure is God insecure he's insecure in who he is. Or is it because so often people are coming to God not on the basis of who He says He is, but on the basis of who they say He is? Well, this is who God is. And God says, no, I'm jealous for, for who I am. I'm jealous for the reality um, of my glory, of who I am. Now, we have a problem sometimes with this idea of, of the glory of God. God uh, um, being jealous for the glory of God. So, looking around in the room, I'm going to land on Jason again, just because it's more fun that way. Um, Why is it ugly to praise mankind for something? Or maybe you don't think it is. So, let me give you a good example. Probably, Jason's the strongest guy in here. So, he has the most strength. So, how about I said, well, from now on, because Jason's the strongest guy in here, Uh, Every time Jason comes in the room, he's going to try to come into the room last, but every time he comes in, everybody needs to stand up. And we all stand up and we all need to say together three times, Jason is the strongest, Jason is the strongest, Jason is the strongest. Then we can sit down and he'll take a seat. And it also would be really good if when we were having a conversation with our friends, we're out talking with somebody, if we would try to at some point take the conversation around to the point... That Jason is the strongest among us. So we want to try to take the time to, to point our conversation to describe and glorify the strength of Jason. That's Trump yeah, that's <laughs> what makes him a demagogue. So why is it ugly if that was the case? Why, what makes that ugly? What do you think? And, and why is that wrong? Only God is worship. So who gives Jason his strength? God. Okay, so the problem is that the glory should never terminate on us. Why? Because whatever we're receiving glory for was ultimately a gift from God. And it may be that He is the strongest. And maybe He even is the strongest on earth. And, and that may be, but where did that strength come from? And even the desire to utilize the gift that God gave him to make himself better is still a God-given uh, uh, attribute or desire that, that a person has. So glory should never terminate on us. Right? In other words, when somebody tries to give me glory, I, I teach a good message. And somebody comes up and says, Man, Jackie, that was a good message. I don't let glory terminate on me. Now, I don't say, oh, don't do that to me. Because sometimes that can be a kind of a false humility that people do. So instead, I just say, thank you. And I know that whatever occurred on any given Sunday, Wednesday, Thursday, whatever, Tuesday morning when we're doing discipleship, whatever happens on any of those times, that's God. And that glory goes to Him. It doesn't terminate with me. Does that make sense? Now, the reason, as human beings, that that glory comes to me, and my job is to take that glory and allow it to terminate on God, but who would God point it to? See, the reason I have to do it is because whatever I have or whatever I've done is a gift that I have received from God. But it's not wrong for God to receive glory if, in fact, He is the one with whom it all terminates. Who would He pass it off on? He wouldn't know because he's it. He's the ultimate. He's the end all, beat all of it all. So, with God, uh, should terminate all glory. And even to the point where in our lives, uh, reflecting some of this concept, God would say, uh, not only should all glory terminate with God, but that, but that we should live our lives out glorifying God. And not only that, we should live out our lives, and if in the, in the uh, method of living out our lives, it would bring us to the point where we would lose our lives glorifying God, God would tell us, glorify me. Right? No matter what, no matter what happens. In fact, I think God would want us to live um, and make decisions based on, and this is kind of where the rubber meets the road for us, God would want us to make decisions based on God's glory and not my immediate good. And when so when we when we talk about this concept of, of bringing glory and honor to God, when we talk about that, it's it's directly linked to the idea of the the jealous the attribute of jealousy in God. So I'm going to let Eric do his thing, and then we'll, we'll discuss it at the end. Um, I would encourage you to go through the scriptures. Not all of these scriptures is he going to talk about. A lot of them he's not going to talk about. If you get a chance, pick up the book. But I would encourage you to read them, because there's really no way for us to avoid um, this attribute. It's too many places. It's everywhere. It's not only Old Testament. It's New Testament. There's no place to go from it. So we need, ought to know it, right? The only way we know God is that God reveals himself to us. And God reveals himself to us in ways that may challenge us but require us to, to dig. What is it that you mean by this? And there are several examples in the Bible that we can see. And the first one will we'll hit when we start this, hopefully, and everything works. So uh, you want to flip out the light just so we can see a little bit better? I'm sorry you won't be able to, you might be able to take notes if you can write in the dark. There might be enough light once I, uh, <laughs> oh, that's the other thing. I better make sure to, where's all my, where's all my uh, helpful people? How's this dumb thing turn on? Does it work? Yeah, there's switch in the back. that one, it's plugged in. Okay. please. looks like it's coming. Yeah. Look out! I smash it. Sparkly smash. Well, I don't know if it'll work, but my speakers will play. was as
1: looking. Please open your Bibles to Numbers 25, where we will find a story that tells us uh,
0: just how God is for us. Flip it on again, just so I can see. Make sure I'm plugged in the right spots.
1: For Himself. Be enabled by the Spirit to know. behold your glory, your goodness, your holiness, the depth of our depravity, your commitment to rooting that out in Lord your God of jealousy. Help us now as we, we look at this passage of scripture to be fed by you. Pray this in the name of Christ. Numbers twenty-five, verse one. While well, Israel lived in Shittim, this is on the east side of the Jordan River. God is preparing His people, transforming His people, purifying His people. Mm-hmm before they move into the promised land. And that provision, but also those challenges that are there. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab, intermarrying with people of other religions and worshiping their God. Don't miss the intentionally offensive sexual metaphors here. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods. And the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked, bound, joined, became intimately, deeply connected to Yoked. If those gods went, they went. He yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you, kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family. The very sin that started this judgment. He brings a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation, this was no accident, of the people of Israel, while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of the meeting. When Phineas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it. He rose, left the congregation, and took a spear to him, and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman, through her belly. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. The Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel, in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them. So that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, behold, I give to him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the sins of of atonement for the people of Israel. What do you want in your leaders? I, I've looked at want ads for ministry positions, not because I want them, because I'm interested but because I'm interested in what people are looking for. And I will often look at descriptions of pastors, ministry leaders, and, and teachers in Christian places to see what sort of character traits people are looking for. And, in my estimation, the one that's used most is dynamic. We want dynamic leaders. Enthusiastic, visionary, vision casting, strategic. Uh, and you read them and you get tired of just reading them, never mind doing the job. But um, it's amazing how many of those aren't really found in the Bible. But in all of my looking at descriptions of the kind of religious leaders people want, I've never seen anybody who said, I, we want a leader who's jealous. Intensely jealous. Well, that's what we have in this passage. We have someone who is a leader who's intensely jealous, like God is for his own glory. Well, let's back up and find out what leads to this godly jealousy. Well, the first thing we see in verses one through three is a very sinful people. As God prepares them to go into the promised land and take the promised land and meet those people who will be there with all of their false religions and destitute religions, they begin to worship the Baal of Peor, this god of fertility with temple prostitutes and their immorality that goes with that as they intermarry with them. When you share the most intimate of human relationships with someone, you invariably end up worshiping their gods, whatever they may be. And God warned His people not to do this. This is... uh, A warning he gives to them back in Exodus 34. Let's keep our finger here and go back and see how God feels about this in Exodus 34 as God is reestablishing the covenant with his people. Listen to this description God gives of himself. Exodus 34. Let's pick it up in verse 11. Observe what I. Uh, 34, Observe how I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their Asherim. Don't worship their gods. Do just the opposite. Kick over the idols in the land. Crush them. Destroy them. Don't worship them. Do the opposite of that. Why? Well, he could have given lots of reasons. That would have been true reasons. But look at the one he gives, verse 14. For you shall worship no other god. Why? For the Lord whose name is Jealous is Elkanah, is a Jealous God lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice, and you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. He says, don't do this, and here they are. Even after this fearful display of God's Holiness and wrath on Mount Sinai. They do the very thing he told them not to. They're in the midst of intermarrying with these foreign women and worshiping their gods, and they're bound to him, joined to this new god, Baal of Peor. This is not some passing casual sin. This is a giving over of their hearts to another god. And please realize, in this Breaking of the law, we see here at least three of the Ten Commandments are just smashed here. The first one, "Have no other gods before me," crushed. The second one, "Don't don't worship any graven images," and they they're doing that. And the seventh commandment, "Do not commit adultery," they're doing that. So their spiritual whoredom is actually being worked out in physical sexual immorality, literal horror. This is a a horrific sin they're committing. And then, in the midst of this, a sinful man comes and epitomizes what's going on in one example. What used to be going on outside of the city is now not just going on inside the city, but in the the tabernacle precinct. The place of worship is now prostituted with the very sin that has brought this judgment and the repentance that it brought about. In a public display of this horrific immorality and rebellion against God. When you read through the Bible. You feel like God just overreacts. When he judges sin, you're like, man, what's the deal? Come on, chill out. As you develop a biblical perspective, you won't think that anymore. When you live in a culture that trivializes God constantly, and minimizes Him and mocks Him constantly, and when our own idolatrous hearts do that constantly, It seems like God's overreacting to sin all the time. But from a biblical perspective, what's the most astounding thing is that he puts up with anybody. That he lets anybody live. That he doesn't just destroy them all and you and me right now for that matter. But it's amazing. We get offended at God's wrath. Rather than being amazed at His grace, even in striving with this rebellious people and us as well. It's been said Canaanite religion was doubtless, the most depraved and morally corrupt of any cultic system the world's ever known. And then this man comes in and displays this, apparently, having sexual intercourse, embodying the very sin that caused this judgment in the first place in public. God overreacted. We have a very sinful people and a very sinful man here, in open, full defiance of God, in front of the leaders of of God's people and of God, and he's flagrantly repudiating the very heart of the covenant. The very thing God said, don't do this, because I'm a jealous God, they do it. We serve a jealous God That's what he clearly saw in the passage We looked at in Exodus 34 But I hope you're noticing That God is making sure We see sin as a profoundly Relational thing Profoundly personal thing God's commands aren't just Ethics out there In the pragmatic world They are an expression Of something profoundly Relational and personal, So relational and personal And God compares his relationship with his people To a marriage He calls himself the husband of his people And the people of God are the bride of Christ It's a theme carried all the way through the Bible And so when you disobey God It's not just breaking a rule It's spiritual adultery It's breaking faithfulness To the husband of his people. Uh, It's breaking a covenant. It's not giving him the faithfulness, the allegiance, the devotion he deserves and demands as the one true God. And so, this is a very serious sin. sin, We're to worship the one true God in the way and ways he says to worship him. And you're breaking a marriage covenant. You're defiling a sacred relationship between God and His people who are set apart for His glory when we disobey Him. And this leads God to deep anger and jealousy and to a public execution in this scene. He says, take the people and up-execute them in broad daylight. You see, this is not something we're going to keep private. Because there has to be massive learning going on here Among my people in this scene And for millennia Including today in 2012 Are we learning about God? Are we learning about how He thinks and feels and responds To our sin and how we should think and feel and respond To sin as well A public execution in broad daylight A refusal to bury the bodies, which is a great dishonor, but he's trying to teach massive lessons here, like he does throughout the entire Bible. God's anger always has drastic consequences. Just like the New Testament says, the wages of sin is what? Death. That's drastic. When you're dealing with a holy God and you recognize the depth of human sin, drastic consequences are indeed called for. And if you start to get this, you'll be staggered that God's as gracious and patient as He really is, rather than being put off and thinking He's overreacting. I just long and pray as we immerse ourselves in the Scriptures that our perspective will become less and less representative of modern-day American culture and more representative of God's perspective we find in the Scriptures. So that we start to understand him and his ways. The wages of sin is death. And if you don't understand that, you'll never understand the solution to that. Sin. In the gospel. Which we'll get to. We have a jealous God. What does it mean to be jealous? Here's a definition. Jealousy is a consuming, single-minded pursuit of deserved, exclusive faithfulness and honor. You see, it's, it's what a husband or a wife uh, demands in a marriage, rightly. Any husband or wife who finds out that their spouse is sleeping around and isn't bothered by that, doesn't love that spouse. But here we find a loving jealousy, a jealous love. And you get this, don't you? If you even can imagine being married if you're not, and find out that your husband or wife has been unfaithful to you, Just let your mind go there and start to understand the way God feels toward our unfaithfulness. It's a consuming, single-minded pursuit of deserved, exclusive faithfulness and honor, such as this general zeal. It's not envy, wanting something that doesn't belong to you. It's demanding this relational exclusivity that a marriage relationship should demand. So it's a good thing and a right thing. And even in a culture that mocks marriage exclusivity, you still get this, don't you? You can't quite seem to get away from it, even though our senses are are so deadened to this sort of thing, the culture that mocks marriage constantly, but you get it nonetheless, don't you? Now, human jealousy is so often, the majority of the time, probably ungodly and unwarranted and, and, and foolish, but never for God and never when godly people experience it in the way God does, like Phineas does in our passage. So we indeed have a jealous God. Gerhard von Rod says, it's an emotion jealousy is, springing from the very depths of God's personality. And Walter Heitro says, it's a basic element of the whole Old Testament idea of God. Yet we so seldom think about it, or preach about it, or consider it, and some attributes of God are so emphasized at the expense of others like this one, and we don't understand it, or we ignore it, or we distort it, or we hate these attributes, and wish we could just Hurry up and get the Proverbs. That's wrong with Proverbs, but we need to read the whole Bible. And, and we'll see this God in all His glory, which includes the glory of His jealousy. You know, I could have pointed to hundreds of passages, but let me point to two. As He's delaying His wrath against Israel for their rebellion one more time, look what He says in Isaiah. For my own sake, for my own sake, I will act. For how can my name be profaned, and my glory I will not give to another? When he restores them back to the land, what's motivating him? Exodus 39.25. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob, and have mercy on the whole house of Israel, and I will be jealous for my holy name. God alone deserves absolute honor, worship, and glory. And he responds, and we should do anytime we or anyone else seek that glory for ourselves. When we don't ascribe to him the glory due his name. When we desire it for ourselves for the work of our hands. We should hate that. And Christians need to be really good haters. I know they're trying to say, come on, don't be a hater. Child abuse? You better hate that. Anything that dishonors God and destroys His creation intended to glorify Him, you better be a good hater. Be a hater. Just hate the right things. The things God does. You hate racism? You hate, hate stopping on the poor? Do you hate dishonoring God and mocking Him? Do you hate entertainment that trivializes God? Or do you enjoy it? You're just so used to it. Doesn't bother you anymore. If you like humor that that mocks the things God loves and glorifies the things he hates. I've probably excused my sin most of my life with humor. It's only a joke. Well, God ain't playing around. He's not joking about sin. I hope that could be as clear as it is in the Bible for you today. Have you presumed upon his grace, thinking he doesn't really care? And please don't think this is an Old Testament God. You know what happens in Acts 12? Herod begins to be worshipped by the people of Israel. And he receives that worship, and God kills him. What's going on when Ananias' fire is struck dead? This is how does the whole thing end in Revelation? This is not an Old Testament idea of God. He will deal with sin. Somebody's going to die for sin. Someone will die. And please don't think this is because God's insecure. You know, so often human jealousy is based on insecurity. This ridiculous husband can never quite feel secure in himself in this relationship. Or he's got all of a sudden warranted jealousy. Or he doesn't have all the information and his wife's faithful and he doesn't realize it or acknowledge it. That's never the case with God. So get all those ideas of sinful human jealousy out of your head and say, No, God is this way and I love that he is. Don't put up with God, please. That's what you need to do with Traffic. You gotta put up with the in LA. You don't put up with God. Yeah, I don't like this any more than you do about God. We're stuck with it, so let's just get on with it. No! Please don't settle there. Learn to love everything about God. Everything. His jealousy, do you realize? If he weren't jealous, he would not love you. Why? Because he lets you settle chief cheap imitations of Him as the ultimate object of your love, of your affections, of your delights. He would let you settle for only what leads to death ultimately. If sex is your God, or money's your God, or your reputation's your God, or, or whatever it is that may be your God, if He let you settle for that, He would be profoundly unloving to you. If He lets you settle for anything but Himself, as, as the, what you love most. He would be so unloving to you, and He wouldn't be just. We couldn't call Him a truthful God, or a just God, because He's letting us live a lie. So please learn to see His jealous pursuit of His own glory as a loving thing, and a just thing, and He is most fully for you, when He is most fully for Himself in your life. God alone is the one for whom self exaltation is the greatest virtue. That's never true of us, and let God be God in this. God is loving and precisely because he relentlessly pursues the praises of his name in your life and in your heart. This is a good God we serve, and a righteous God, and a loving God. And don't try to change him based on your definition of what you think love should be. He's telling us right here. This kind of jealous love becomes the catalyst (coughs) for God to pursue his wayward bride when she wants nothing but whoredom. When all she wants is the other, other lovers. If he weren't jealous for her, he'd say, well, let's let her go her way. She's an adult. It's between her and the Lord. No. He goes after her. He, he pulls her out of her stupidity and foolishness and sin. And redeems her. So, so who's going to do something about this? Well, in our scene, there's only one guy. One guy. Not even Moses. He didn't get up. He didn't do anything about it. One guy. His name's Phineas. And he provides a deadly cure for a fatal disease. The wages of sin is death. Jealousy for God's glory motivates him. And he represents God before the people. In verses 7 and 8, we see this man, Phineas, representing God himself and his attitude toward this sin. Who is this guy, Phineas? Quick, Quick tour of the life of Phineas in the Bible. A priest. He's a grandson of Aaron. He's the leader of the temple guards. He's responsible for protecting this tabernacle area that's being defiled. Exodus six tells us this. He's also commander of the army that fought the Midianites. This actually starts a war, so it's only makes sense. All right, you lead the way, is, uh, Phineas. You started this. Hey, here we go, and he leads the war. He leads the party to investigate an apparent unfaithfulness of the two and a half tribes, as we'll see later on in Joshua twenty-two. He's the main advisor the war against the Benjamites that we see in Judges 22. Every time this guy shows up, he's jealous for God's honor. This is the distinctive character trait of this guy. And look how Psalm 106 looks back on him. Then they yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor and ate sacrifices offered to the dead. They provoked the Lord to anger with their deeds and a plague broke out among them. Then... Look, this is in a worship context, in the wisdom literature. You wanted to get the psalms so you get away from these bad stories? Well, here you go. Here he is again. Then Phineas stood up and intervened, and the plague was staged, and that was counted to him as righteousness from generation to generation forever. Hey, a lot of you know the Bible says that Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness. Did you know that Phineas's godly jealousy was coming to him as righteousness? is that
0: amazing? God
1: considers him a righteous man because he was consumed with a single minded of pursuit of God's glory among his people. God considered him a righteous man. This is like a spell. He wants God to be recognized, he wants God to get his props. He, he, he doesn't want anything God has done to fail to give glory to God. He's taking God's side here, representing God. And great leaders of God's people have always exhibited this emotion. And it's a primary basis for the courage and the boldness and the integrity with which great leaders of God's people live their lives. And whenever in the Bible religious reform or revival takes place, you'll always be able to find a leader who's consumed with godly jealousy. You know, there's this idea, God's a big man, he can take care of himself. Don't get all worked up about these things offending God. And there's truth to that, but do you know the main way he defends himself in his name? Through his people. Because God's big enough to take care of himself doesn't mean God's people get the day off when there's unfaithfulness. It means we're the primary agents through which the truth is preached and proclaimed and lived. We're these agents of glorifying God and kicking over idols. So whether it's Moses smashing the tablets in jealous anger when he finds the people worshiping in the golden calf, or whether it's Phineas taking his spear and driving through this man and woman, or if it's this punk kid David picking up rocks and running at Goliath saying, who's this uncircumcised Philistine talking about the armies of the living God like this, as the whole army's silent or whether it's Elijah taking on the 400 prophets of Baal, when the people don't say a word and won't stop wavering between two opinions. And what does he say to God after he's pouting? Does Jezebel still after him in 1 first, first, uh, he, Kings? He says, I alone have been jealous for your honor. And God says, now, Elijah, at got 7,000 in Jerusalem who we haven't kissed the mouth of Baal. You're not alone. I've always got a, a righteous remnant. Uh, or if it's Jesus... Walking into his temple and flipping over tables and driving people out with a whip because they prostituted the worship sanctuary was commercialism. Or if it's Paul writing to the Corinthians who were of evil people, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy because I betrothed you to one husband and I want to present you to him one day, a pure virgin. You see, being intensely concerned that God's glorified. And hating unfaithfulness and loving faithfulness has got to describe our hearts and our lives as Christians. Or the Hezekiah or Jehoiada or Josiah uh, smashing sacred pillars and cutting down Asherah we We have to have this category of godly jealousy. Now we need to certainly qualify this from our scene, I don't want you to go to work tomorrow. Somebody takes the Lord's name in vain, and you pick up a sledgehammer and kill them. No, that's not what we're doing. Why? Because this story is in a theocratic Old Covenant context. Right? Uh, I think we have, uh, yes, yeah, it's Old Covenant, it's theocracy. We don't have any human agents in the church being used as uh, a method of this. God strikes people directly. But we have a very different way this starts to be expressed in the New Testament. No, no killing like we have the Old Testament, where these people are God's primary agents of this judgment. The second thing is, Phineas is following God's clear commands in the law. And we see Phineas who say, man, that's radical. He saved thousands of lives, both in what the uh, law commands and what this judgment specifically was commanded. He ends up saving lives... Lots of them because he was Obeying clear commands in the law The third thing is um, There's a focus on God's people uh, I, I think this is important This was amazing to me as I studied this idea in the Bible It's it's a focus Primarily on God's people It doesn't mean God isn't concerned about being glorified in everything Everywhere But godly jealousy in the Bible Is, uh, is usually focused On God's people Judgment will begin in the household There's a focus among the people of God. There's not make the Midianites godly. It's not, let's make Rome Christian. It's let's be God's people. And be faithful. And yes, be salt light and yes, we make a difference where we are. But the focus of God, the jealousy, is the people of God, as it is in this story. Uh, what else do we see? We see that within Uh, Genesis' actions are within the clear responsibilities he had as a priest in the temple guard. It's not going to be your job to kick over every idol that's out there. You won't have time. So the discernment comes by saying, Lord, what is is the responsibility you give me? What's my sphere of influence? How how do you expect me to express this godly jealousy and lie to that? And finally, our weapons are so different now. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood Paul says in Ephesians 6. Fundamentally, it has worldly implications, but fundamentally, we wrestle against rulers, against authorities, and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. That's our primary enemy now that, that has physical, real manifestations, but fundamentally, the focus of the battle is here, the spiritual realm. So when you get up in the morning and hit your knees, you're going to war. When you get up in the morning and open your Bible, you're going to war. Strap behind your sword In this spiritual realm Where the primary battle rages Therefore take up the whole armor of God That you may be able to withstand In the evil day And having done all to stand firm Stand therefore Having fastened on the belt of truth And having put on the breastplate of righteousness See weapons The shoes to your feet Having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace That's our primary weapon The gospel of peace Jesus' work that brings us peace with God in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. What we're doing right now is arming ourselves. That, that's, we come to church for lots of reasons. One of them is to get ready for war. That's what we're doing. Uh, the sword of the Spirit and the, and the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. So how do you fight the good fight? You focus on the spiritual realities. That's the core of them, and you fight with the weapons of warfare of this new covenant. So uh, David's stone's been replaced with, with, with the word of God, the gospel of peace, and Phineas' spirit has been replaced with, with faith and righteousness, these primary weapons in the warfare of prayer and the word of God. Let's, get, let's make some application. All right, what does this mean for us? one, God's glory and honor is our ultimate goal in everything. He hates unfaithfulness, and we should too. He loves faithfulness, and we should too. And so, our question we constantly ask is Will God be honored by this? Will God be honored by the way I spend my weekend? Or my entertainment choices? Or the way I conduct myself in this relationship that I just started with this woman? Or in my marriage? Or in my parenting? Will God be honored by this? Will God be honored in the way I spend my money? Will God be honored in my vocation choices? Is His honor what I want? Will God be honored in the way I play my sport or my instrument? Will He be pleased by this starting with my heart attitude and it all? Will He be pleased with the way I eat or drink because I should put all of the glory of God? In my life? Will He be pleased with the corporate worship of this church because the intent is to honor Him? Will He be pleased with your private worship at home? Will he be pleased with, with the way you lead your family, fathers? The way you support that leadership, wives. The way you if any kids here. The way you honor your mother and your father. Will God be pleased with those things? Those are our motives. Not popularity or pragmatic uh, motives, but God's honor. And when that happens, we say, to hell with the pragmatics. And I don't say that goodly. I think pragmatism may be our greatest idolism there. Does this work? Does it work to hell with pragmatism? Does it work? Does it honor God? You know what worked for Phineas? He started a war. If is our idol, that's gotta go. And So, what else do we find out? We find out that our inward attitudes determine outward actions and
0: matter deeply to God. Did you
1: notice as I read through this, that God doesn't specifically honor Phineas for what he did, but how he felt. That led to what he did. He had this heart of jealousy for my glory. It's almost, it's almost seems they don't even talk about the specifics of how he acted. That It's almost as if they're irrelevant. What really mattered was Phineas' intense jealousy that God be honored. That led him to action, and it needs to. But it starts with affections for God and for his glory. And if they're not there, the action will be either. God really cares about heart Look, this isn't about personality type. It's not about being a loudmouth like me or, anybody, or being like anybody else. Doesn't mean introverts become extroverts, but it means whatever you're like, you have deep in your heart an intense desire that God be honored in your life and among His people. And when Andrew Brain plays his bass up here, he's doing it to the glory of God for His honor, and he's taking a spear and stabbing the pride that grows in there when we say, you're good. And he says, I don't know. kill that pride, right? You see, it's all to the glory of God. And that's now our motive, and our heart attitude is where it starts. And our obedience glorifies God. Notice there's a very practical aspect of this, obey God's commands. Glorifying God isn't primarily these dramatic displays, is it? And it needs to be practiced, experience along with other godly traits. God's never just jealous. He's patiently jealous and lovingly jealous and compassionately jealous. We don't give ourselves permission to just be one way or four ways. We want to be godly with with integrated emotions. I think this is the core of Christian maturity. And then we are to be bold and courageous and take a stand for truth. Phineas breaks ranks with everybody and does something about this sin. And guys, one of my biggest burdens especially my younger men in this generation, but generally, too, is the apathy that's just seeped in, like, the fog of... Where are the rings? One of those, right? Yeah, the fog just comes in before you know we're breathing in the fog and living in the fog of apathy and passivity and detached, disengaged, cruel. What? Cool? Rock on, too. No, some things aren't cool. And we need to be able to say, cool. In a, in a culture of whatever, God's people can't be whatever people. Yeah, I remember a few years ago, I read about this guy named Lance flows in the air. Anybody ever hear this guy? Probably not. Because he, he refused to give any interviews for this. But a few years ago, he's at the beach in Pensacola, Florida with his family. His kids are in the water. And his, his nephew, Jesse Arbogast, is in the water. And all of a sudden, people start screaming sharp. He looks out and there's blood just churning in the water. And he realizes that this shark has his nephew Jesse. So, what does Uncle Vance do? He sprints into the water and goes up to this seven foot shark and starts to wrestle with it to save his nephew. come here. This shark is six inches taller than Andre. And Vance goes out there and he starts wrestling that's six inches taller. This is no joke, sit down, shark. Yes. Uh, he, he starts wrestling the seven-foot shark. And he ends up dragging this thing to shore. Gets his nephew out. Realizes there are still kids in the water. And that the shark has Jesse's arm. So he goes back in after it. And grabs it and wrestles with it for eight or ten minutes before the park rangers get there. To save the kids in the water and get Jesse's arm back. I want to pardon that guy, I'm sorry. That, that's just amazing. His wife's given CPR to Jesse saved his life, and they sewed his arm back on after they shot the shark. Sorry, people. They shot the shark and got the arm out of its throat. And when you stand on the beach, Vance does something about it. He wouldn't give an interview. Somebody overheard him say when somebody asked him why he did. He said, I had kids in the water. What else could I do? Man up, oh boy, man up. I just love that. Oh, man, and, and, and he didn't start a reality TV show either. That's why you don't know who he is. And guys, we're the people who say, God was being dishonored. What else can I do? we did want to talk to our roommate about her, her compromise. Never mind, engage the culture, right? Okay. Where's the boldness that comes from a jealousy for God's honor? Yes, in love and yes, in patience. Without any self-righteousness, taking that spear and like I told, told you Andrew has to do because he's such a good bass player, killing all those idols growing in his heart and in ours. We, we focus on that idolatry in our own hearts before we start pointing out to anybody else's. But, but once we're walking with the Lord and can honestly say we're doing that consistently, well, we're the bold people being able to make a difference. We're the people taking a stand for truth and especially the gospel. Where's the boldness we see in the apostles who are willing to say, no, if you're going to kill us, you're going to have to kill us. Because we can't help but talk about what we've seen and heard. Uh, so we need bold leaders who are willing to live this out. Uh, what else? We need to realize that even though we have dramatic displays like Saved your nephew from a shark and killing, like we have in this scene, most of the time, godly jealousy is expressed in mundane looking ways. I put mundane in quotation marks because for us, it's not, nothing's mundane. Because everything has the potential of honoring God. Eating and drinking, the most mundane looking thing in the world, has the potential of being an act of worship. So for us, nothing's mundane. It looks mundane, but most. Godly jealousy is expressed in really normal looking ways that most people besides God don't notice. And so uh, it's done by refusing to whine and complain and grumble. I'm always amazed at Philippians 2. Listen to this. It says, You're able to be blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe. And how do you do that? Stop whining. Is that amazing? Refuse to grumble and complain. Refuse to get sucked into a, 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 an entitlement consumer culture that makes you a whiner, complainer, just like everybody else. Refuse to do that, you'll shine like a star. is that amazing? It couldn't be more simple in some ways. You want to be grateful when the default mode in our culture is to complain. I'm not going to be that way, and you can shine like a star. Or you can be involved in children's ministry, especially at a place like Grace that is... It has an intense godly jealousy Driving our children's ministry Yes, I'm serious about this That's why I love our children's ministry I love that my kids are part of it And growing in godly jealousy for it So, what do I mean by that? Listen to this statement of our philosophy of ministry And our children's ministry At grace, our children's ministry endeavors to work with families To teach children about the greatness and worth of God And encourage them to glorify God Trust in Him live holy lives and serve God joyfully Did you hear that? Yes! And that's happening in her life. And, and that's what's happening. That's godly jealousy. That's not, Let's make our kids nice boys and girls. No! <laughs> let's, let's see them glorify God with their little lives. So you want to glorify God with an intense godly jealousy? Sign up for work in the nursery. We're wishing I'd end this sermon soon or right now. But uh, yeah, I remember somebody say you know, people might want to change the world. You want to change the world? You can never change the diaper. You want to change the world, sign up to work in the nursery. Start there. Especially if it's a ministry driven by this. And so it happens in the mundane things of life. Here's the last, the most important point. You ready? Phineas just points us to Jesus. That's, that's the ultimate thing here. He's just a foreshadowing of Jesus. As great as he was, he could never fulfill the commands, the demands, the kind of godly jealousy that God alone was able to provide for us in Christ. He's given a a perpetual priesthood and he atones for the sins of the people and God honors him for that, but he's so much more than an example to us. He's a foreshadowing for us of Jesus. You see, because until he comes and yes, flips over tables in the temple, but delivers the death blow to dishonoring of God most when he dies and is judged. You see, God turns the spear on his son and the son hates sin so much, he comes and is willing to do that. And does it for the joy set before him, because he knows it will satisfy the wrath and the justice of God. That's why the Bible puts it this way. All sin falls short of the glory of God. I hope you don't put yourself in a different category than that Israelite and Midianite woman. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation, satisfaction of God's wrath, by His blood, to be received by faith so that He might be just, hate sin. and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Somebody's going to die for sin. The amazing good news of the Gospel is somebody did. And it doesn't have to be you, because he did. His name is Jesus, and He took place on the cross, and he, he rose from the dead and conquered sin. And that's the good news of the gospel. When you read about God's judgment in the Old Testament, don't just say, well, God's serious about sin because he's holy. Say, and he opened up the ground and swallowed his own son so I could be forgiven. That's what ultimately happens is the fulfillment of all this righteousness and the perfectly righteous son of God who came and lived and died and rose so we could have reconciled relationship. Father, help us to grow in our godly jealousy. Help us to be patient and compassionate and loving in the midst of it. And Lord, I pray that we would be a people who aren't drawn into the culture of apathy and disengagement that is everywhere. So Lord, help us to be so different and depend on Jesus and it all. It's in His name we pray.
0: Alright, you can get the light. <clears throat> so there were, I've got uh, really three different videos, uh, two of the classes that Eric teaches at Biola, one's on the character of God, the other's in on theology, <clears throat> both of which he discusses the concept of of godly jealousy, but I thought this which was just a message he preached at the church was pretty amazing and does a good job of kind of expressing what we're talking about when we talk about uh, godly jealousy. So hopefully that kind of gives you a, an idea. I thought it was a good way to kind of get outside of our head, the, the, maybe the concept we bring to it, and hopefully get into our head how God sees it what God sees as uh, as a part of it. So I just want to work our way through uh, some of the scripture verses that we have down here as we uh, talk about those two concepts. Um, the biblical basis for God's jealousy. Uh, first, God's jealousy for His own glory. Uh, God's jealousy is more than a passing mood. Remember, I, I, I know sometimes we... As we work our way through, we, we've gone through a lot of attributes and we're almost done. Next week we'll finish uh, the last three um, uh, prayerfully. <clears throat> and so, but one of the things we talked about was God's impassibility. And then we talk about very distinctly emotional descriptions of attributes of God, right? Jealousy is, a, is an, an emotional term. Love is an emotional term, and wrath is an emotional term. Love and wrath we'll hopefully be talking about next week. So, so when we look at it, when we talk about impassibility, impassibility is not... Now, some people teach it different, okay? So let me... Let me they, this idea. Some people struggle so much with the idea... They never struggle with the love of God, but they struggle with the wrath of God, they struggle with the jealousy of God, and so they instead lean upon the impassibility of God, and they remove all emotion... And they say that the word jealousy, the word love, and the word wrath are really anthropomorphisms, figures of speech, metaphors uh, to describe the, indescri- the indescribable God. And by doing that, they remove all meaning. Right? Because now I say, well, why did God use the word jealous? Isn't He trying to get? But remember when we talk about the impassibility of God, it, it means... That there's not something we do here that changes God's emotion. Now, what I mean is, the things for which God is jealous for, He's always jealous for. He's never not jealous for. The things that God is wrathful of, He's always wrathful of. He's never not wrathful of. And the things for which God loves. Always, remember, if you remember, we described it like waterfall, standing under a particular waterfall, Right? Uh, I am standing under God's wrath because I have, in essence, chosen to stand under God's wrath. I am, by my choices, which always matter, uh, I find myself under the wrath of God. I'm choosing to sin. I'm choosing to walk in sin. I find myself under the the jealousy of god which ultimately leads to the wrath of god because i'm not honoring god i'm not i'm not glorifying him or i'm standing under the love of god i'm standing in that place where god's love is bestowed which is where according to scripture in jesus christ his son so i don't want us to view the concept of the impassibility of god as though god there's no feelings because the scripture uses very specific feeling words and ideas to help translate those things to us. So, so when we talk about it, that's the idea. It's not a passing mood. It's not God's in a bad mood today and you did something wrong, and so God's in a bad mood and He's going to get you. No, these are things that are constant in the character and nature of God. Right. So, it springs from His innate character and is the foundation of all godly jealousy. It is. One of the enduring characteristics of makeup is communicable attributes. Remember the idea, communicable attribute simply means it's something we can reflect. We won't be like God in it. We, we, we will never be like God in His communicable attributes, but there should be a reflection of that in our life. Several examples he laid out for us, and if you get a chance to look at his book, he does a great job. He works through five examples in his book. He talks about Phineas uh, he talks about David. He talks about one more, Elijah. He talks about Jesus, and he talks about Paul. All of them, all those five guys. Remember, I tell you, if there's a concept of of uh, theology in the Word of God, then there ought to be examples of this concept that you're that you're seeing on the pages of Scripture. And we see those things lived out in those five men. And that's not the only five. There's many you can go to, but those are the five he focuses on in his book. So the idea that it can be reflected. Uh, Imperfectly, of course, we're broken, right? But nonetheless, it can be reflected. It's a jealousy that God always responds to the abrogation of His exclusive right to be acknowledged as the only true God. In other words, it it matters to God that He's the only true God, that He is a worthy of worship and praise and honor and glory and we'll talk about some of those guide, or some of those concepts as we work our way. God demands that his people recognize his exclusive claim on them. When God is jealous, it means that he continually seeks to pr- protect his own honor. It is not only the emotion that leads to divine wrath, it is the cause of god's loving pursuit. I think he does a good job of expressing that. If there was no jealousy with God, He would, He'd just let you go. Who cares? But that's not the description of God anywhere, especially in Hosea. You go to Hosea, that's not the story of Hosea. What's the story of Hosea? Pursuit. Pursuit of somebody who wanted to be pursued? No. Pursuit of somebody who was in a covenantal relationship, right, with with God's prophet, but didn't want it and was running away, but God wouldn't let him go. The hound of heaven. Pursuit. That's, the pursuit of the love of God is expressed uh, in and through his jealousy. Let's look at some of the scriptures. Uh, Exodus 10, 1 and 2. Now the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh. In fact, uh, the, the, the Exodus is a great example of, uh, of the jealousy of God. The Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, <clears throat> that I may show these signs of mine before him, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your sons' sons, the mighty things I have done in Egypt, and my signs which I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. Does God want to be known for who He is? Does He want the right perception? Does it matter? Yeah, I think you're going to... There are 83 different scriptures... Where God says, something that has happened that you may know that I am He, or that I am the Lord. Eighty-three times is enough time for me to say, yeah, I think there's a point in that, right? There's a point. God wants to be known. Why did He harden Pharaoh's heart? Why did He bring about the Exodus? So that He would be known. So that He could be experienced and understood. So that so that He could be glorified for who He is. Isaiah 48, 9-11 my, For My name's sake I will defer My anger. And for My praise I will restrain it from you, so that I do not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. <clears throat> Why? For My own sake. For my own sake I will do it for how should my name be profaned and I will not give my glory to another So the glory God's glory matters to him who he is how we comprehend him how we understand him Ezekiel 20:42 to 44 Then you shall know that I am the Lord when I bring you into the land of Israel into the uh, country for which I raised my hand and an oath to give to your fathers. And there you shall remember your ways and all your doings with which you were defiled. And you shall loathe yourselves in your own sight because of all the evils you have committed. Then you shall know that I am the Lord when I have dealt with you for my name's sake, not according to your wicked ways, nor according to your corrupt doings, O house of Israel, says the Lord God." Ultimately, God. Does, if God dealt with us according to our sins and failures, there would not be nothing left. But for His name's sake, to express who He is, what what concept is He expressing in that? What idea? Grace, mercy. Ezekiel thirty-six. But I had concern for my holy name which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations, wherever they went. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations, wherever you went. And I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. And the nation shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. God's corrective measure bringing His people back in line. Ezekiel dealing specifically with the exile, right? Remember, this is Babylon. People are in Babylon. Ezekiel is prophesying to the people in Babylon. Daniel's there prophesying to the people in, Bab- in, in Babylon. Jeremiah, he's out with the, with the rebels. But Ezekiel, he's in with the captives when he's prophesying. Uh, Ezekiel 39 25-27, Therefore uh, says the Lord God, now I will bring back the captives of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel, and I will be jealous for my holy name, for His honor, His glory. After they have borne their shame and all their unfaithfulness in which they were unfaithful to me, when they dwelt safely in their own land, and no one made them afraid, when I have brought them back from the peoples and gathered them out of the enemy's lands and I am hallowed in them in the sight of many nations. Idea of God's jealousy for His name, His glory. Matthew 4.10 Jesus said, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and Him only shall you serve. That's how it all started, right? Right? With the idea of my name is jealous. For I am a jealous God. You shall worship the Lord your God and Him only. Mark 8.38 For whoever is ashamed of me and my words and this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the Son of Man will be ashamed when He comes in the glory of His Father with His holy angels. It starts to... The concept of the jealousy of God starts to place... Scripture, certain scriptures that we've looked at and discussed and maybe struggled with in a proper context helps us see what it is that God's expressing. How about this? John 12. Father, glorify your name. And a voice came from heaven saying, I have glorified it (coughs) and will glorify it again. Therefore, the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered and others said that an angel had spoke to him. Jesus, Father, glorify Your name. What else did Jesus pray? John chapter 17, He prayed for what? Father, glorify glorify Me with the glory which we had before the world was. We already know God said, I won't share My glory with another. What does that mean of the Christ? It means that He is, He shares the being. Uh, Acts 12.21 So on the day Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, he discussed this, sat on his throne, gave an oration to them, and the people shouted, The voice of God, and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him, because he did not give glory to God, and he was eaten by worms and died. Bad day. 2 Corinthians 4, seven. We have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God, and not of us. For whose glory? For whose honor? 2 Corinthians 4.15 For all things are for your sake, that grace, having spread through the many, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. Honor, glory, praise to Him, King of kings. Lord of Lords. Hebrews 1, 4 through 4-14. Whole section on the excellency <coughs> of Jesus Christ. Having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says... Let all the angels of God do what? Worship Him? Yeah. That's not the position of a man. You'll never find a place of a man receiving worship. But here He says, all the angels are going to worship Him. If the angels worship Him, what does it make Him? God says, I will not share My glory with another. I'm jealous for My name. uh and of the angels he says who makes his angels uh, uh, spirits and his ministers a flame of fire but to the son jesus christ god speaking but to the son he god says you are your throne O god is forever and ever god says to the son speaking to the son calls him god and says your throne is eternal Forever and ever, a scepter of righteousness is a scepter of your kingdom. For you have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. What is that the idea of? The the jealousy of God? That we love what God loves, hate what God hates? You have uh, loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God. This is a conversation between father and son. And really, there ain't no way around it. And you're going to be hard-pressed to say this is because uh, Hebrews shouldn't be in the Bible because it has the least of all issues in textual criticism. It's the the clearest of every book in the Bible. Isn't it interesting that that would be a set of Hebrews that was bound together in some of the earliest codexes that we possess with all of Paul's writings? wonder why. Unfortunately, I can't say distinctly, but I can tell you there's prior reason it was in a codex with all Paul's writings. Nonetheless, this view uh, expressed by God to God the Son, God has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than you, your companions. And you, Lord, who is speaking? I told you, God the Father is speaking, right? It's very clear as we work your way all the way down. To which of the angels has he said? Who's the he? God. To which of the angels has he, God, said, uh, Today you are my son. Today I have begotten you. It's a rhetorical question. Demands an answer. None of them. So, I want you to keep in mind, who's speaking? God speaking. Therefore, God, your God. Therefore, God the Son, your God. God the Father. No other way to, to understand it. Verse 10 and, still speaking, same voice speaking, and you, what's that word? Yahweh. Yahweh. God the Father is calling the Son, Yahweh. And you, capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands, they will perish, but you remain. They will grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will fold them up, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will never fail. But to which of the angels has he ever said? Who's the he he's talking about? To which of the angels has God ever said, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? Psalm 110. Sit at my right hand. Are they not all ministering spirits set forth to minister for those who? who will inherit salvation. You see the same attributes displayed in God the Father's description of God the Son in Hebrews chapter 1. One of the greatest chapters, uh, at least on the same par as John 1 in the scripture for the the deity of Christ. So the kind of self-directed jealousy for one's own glory is unique to God. No created thing is in a position to rightly assume this right. Only God deserves absolute honor. Only God deserves worship, glory, and he reacts with jealousy and anger when those he has created do not ascribe it to him or when they desire it for themselves. The Bible clearly teaches it. Next, God's jealousy for the faithfulness of his people. God's jealousy for the faithfulness of his people the primary means by which God is glorified is through the faithfulness of his people Uh, with whom he has established a covenant relationship when his people are unfaithful he naturally reacts with jealousy primarily uh, this attribute is expressed to God's people when judgment begins where does it begin? In a house of God. With who? With God's people. Who did God judge so harshly? He gave 400 years to the Canaanites to repent. But when um, Balaam uh, described to King Balek how to cause God's people to fall. Which by the way is number 25. Send your women down there. Have them dressed scantily clad and the young men and the boys will take them. That's what, caught, that's what started the whole thing with Phineas. That's what brought that judgment. The, the sin of Balaam. Remember Balaam? His ways are talked about in the book of Revelation. The error of Balaam. The greed of Balaam. The way of Balaam. But anyways, when those things are... Why is it that God's uh, um, judgment comes so harshly? His jealousy is expressed with His people. With whom He has a covenant relationship. Right? It's not... God doesn't strike down everyone who's ever lied to God in the world. But He did do it to Ananias and Sapphira. Right? You have not lied to men to God and they died well thankfully he doesn't do it every time we do it either and he didn't do it every time it occurred in the Old Testament but there were very specific times God brings out that this is one of the ways for God's people to honor and glorify him with their faithfulness it's one of the things that probably condemns me more than anything else of the idea of, of God's people being faithful. Exodus twenty one through 6 And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. What is he asking for of the people? Faithfulness, right? <clears throat> asking of the people. I am the Lord, of a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. Exodus 34, 14, For you shall love no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. What's God asking for? Faithfulness. Deuteronomy four, twenty-three and twenty-four. Take heed to yourselves, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make for yourself a carved image in the form of anything which the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. There is no way around this. It's everywhere. Is all over the entire chapter of, of Ezekiel 16, which if I had more time, I would read it all. In fact, I think I'll just take the time. Be all right. We'll stop in a couple. Ezekiel 16. Just, I just want you to see. Remember, I told you, it's not all about where the word is. It's about where do we see these things taking place. Look at what he's talking about in Ezekiel 16. Again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man caused Jerusalem to know her abominations, and say, thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, your birth and your nativity are from the land of Canaan. Your father was an Amorite, your mother a Hittite. What's he saying about the nation of Israel? Where'd they come from? Once upon a time, weren't they Gentile too? When God called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees, was, was it because of something special in him? God just called him out. This is about the birth of the nation that he's describing here. Your father, Amorite, your mother, Hittite, as for your nativity, on the day you were born, your navel cord was, was not cut, nor were you washed in water to cleanse you. You were not rubbed with salt or wrapped in swaddling clothes. No eye pitied you. Uh, to do any of these things for you to have compassion on you you were thrown out in an open field when you were yourself when you yourself were loathed on the day you were born and when i passed by you i saw you struggling in your own blood and i said to you in your blood live yes i said to you in your blood live i made you thrive like a plant who's responsible for The strength, who's responsible for beauty, who's responsible for the gifts. He says, I made you thrive like a plant in the field and you grew, matured, became very beautiful. Your breasts were formed, your hair grew, but you were naked and bare. And when I passed by you again and looked upon you, indeed, your time was the time of love. So I spread my wing over you and I covered your nakedness. And I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant, a relationship. And you became mine, says the Lord. And I washed you in water. Yes, I thoroughly washed off your blood and I anointed you with oil. And I clothed you in embroidered cloth and gave you sandals of badger skin. I clothed you with fine linen and covered you with silk. I adorned you with ornaments, put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a jewel in your nose, earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver. Your clothing was fine linen, silk and embroidered cloth. You ate pastry of fine flour, honey and oil. You were exceedingly beautiful and succeeded to royalty. Your fame went out among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through my splendor which I bestowed on you, says the Lord God. But you trusted in your own beauty. You played the harlot because because of your fame. You poured out your harlotry on everyone passing by who would have it. You took some of your garment and adorned multicolored high places for yourself. Played the harlot on them. Such things should not happen nor be. God describing the honor that was due him that is given to another. You have also taken your beautiful jewelry from my gold and my silver, which I have given you, and made for yourself male images and played the harlot with them. You took your embroidered garments and covered them, and you set my oil and my incense before them. Also, my food, which I give you, the pastry of fine flour, pastry of fine flour, oil, And honey, which I fed you, you gave it, you set it before them as a sweet incense, and so it was, says the Lord God. Moreover, you took your sons and your daughters, whom you bore to me, and these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. Were your acts of harlotry a small matter? That you have slain my children and offered them up uh, to them by causing them to pass through the fire? and in all your abominations and acts of harlotry? You did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare, struggling in your blood? Then it was so, after all your wickedness, woe, woe to you, says the Lord God, that you also built for yourself a shrine, made a high place for yourself in every street. You built your high places at the head of every road and made your beauty to be abhorred, you offered yourself to everyone who passed by, and multiplied your acts of harlotry. You also committed harlotry with the Egyptians, your very fleshly neighbors, and increased your acts of harlotry to provoke me to anger. Behold, therefore, I stretched out my hand against you and diminished your allotment, and gave you up to the will of those who hate you, the daughters of the Philistines, who were ashamed of your lewd behavior. You also played the harlot with the Assyrians because you were insatiable. Indeed, you played the harlot with them and still were not satisfied. Moreover, you multiplied your acts of harlotry as far as the land of the traitor Chaldea. And even then you were not satisfied. How degenerate is your heart, says the Lord God, seeing you do all these things. The deeds of a brazen harlot. You erected your shrine at the head of every road. And built your high place in every street, yet you were not like a harlot because you scorned payment. You are an adulterous wife who takes strangers instead of her husband. Men make payment to all harlots, but you made your payments to your lovers. You hired them to come to you from around all, uh, from all around for your harlotry. You are the opposite of other women in your harlotry because No one solicited you to be a harlot, in that you gave payment, but no payment was given you. Therefore you are the opposite. Now then, O harlot, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Because your filthiness has poured out, and your nakedness uncovered and your harlotry with your lovers, and with all your abominable idols, and because of the blood of your children which you gave to them, Surely, therefore, I will gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure, all those you loved and all those you hated, and I will gather them from all around you and will uncover your nakedness to them, that they may see all your nakedness. I will judge you as a woman who breaks wedlock or shed blood are judged. I will bring blood upon you in fury and jealousy. I will also give you into their hand that they may throw down your shrines and break down your high places. They shall also strip you of your clothes, take your beautiful jewelry, leave you naked and bare. They shall also bring up an assembly against you. They shall stone you with stones and thrust you through with their swords. They shall burn your houses with fire and execute judgment on you in the sight of many women. And I will make you cease playing the harlot. You shall no longer hire lovers. So I will lay to rest my fury towards you, and my jealousy shall depart from you. I will be quiet and be angry no more. Because you did not remember the days of your youth, but agitated me with all these things. Surely I I will also recompense your deeds on your own head, says the Lord God, and you shall not commit lewdness in addition to all your abominations. Indeed, everyone who quotes Proverbs will use this proverb against you, like mother, like daughter. You are your mother's daughter, loathing husband and children. You are the sister of your sisters who loathe their husbands and children. Your mother was a Hittite and your father an Amorite. Your elder sister is Samaria, who who dwells with her daughters to the north of you. Your younger sister, who dwells to the south of you, is Sodom. And her daughters, you did not walk in their ways, nor act according to their abominations, but as if that were too little, you became more corrupt than they in all your ways. As I live, says the Lord God, neither your sister Sodom nor her daughters have done as you and your daughters have done. Look, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She and her daughter had pride, fullness of food, abundance of idleness. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. They were haughty and committed abomination before me. Therefore I took them away as I saw fit. Samaria did not commit half your sins, but you have multiplied your abominations more than they, and have justified your sisters by all the abominations which you have done." You who judged your sisters, bear your own shame also, because the sins which you committed were more abominable than theirs. They are more righteous than you. Yes, be disgraced also, and bear your own shame, because you justified your sisters. When I bring back their captives, the captives of Sodom and her daughters, and the captives of Samaria and her daughters, then I will also bring back the captives of your captivity among them. That you may bear your own shame and be disgraced by all that you did when you comforted them. When your sister Sodom and her daughters <coughs> return to their former state, and Samaria and her daughters return to their former state, then you and your daughters will return to your former state. For your sister Sodom was not a byword in the mouth of the days of your pride. Before your wickedness was uncovered, It was like the time of the reproach of the daughters of Syria and all those around her, or the daughters of the Philistines who despise you everywhere. You have paid for your lewdness and your abomination, says the Lord. For thus, says the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done, who despise the oath by breaking the covenant. Nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you receive your older and your younger sisters, for I will give them to you for daughters, not because of my covenant with you. And I will establish my covenant with you. Then you shall know, I am the Lord, that you may remember and be ashamed and never open your mouth anymore because of your shame when I provide you an atonement for all you have done, says the Lord God. <clears throat> First Corinthians ten twenty two. Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Or James four five. Do you think that the scripture says in vain, the Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? The idea of the jealousy of God for those with whom he is in a relationship, a covenant. So as, as I was, anyways, I was putting all this stuff together, <clears throat> and I encourage you to look through it, um, particularly as you work your way through the objections. I, I talked about those five examples that Derek brings up in his book. Um, anyways, I thought uh, I couldn't go past it. So anyway, that's why we showed the video and hopefully spend a little more time meditating on that concept, because it's the jealousy of God. Uh, that calls his people to repentance, that calls calls his people to revival, that calls his people to change, to to see all of those things that he's expressing in Ezekiel sixteen, and all those things he's expressing all the way through, and as he's describing that jealousy, when Eric is talking in in this particular video and he says, so God took the spirit of Phineas and he put it in his son. And his son, because of his love for us and his desire to honor God, received it. Jesus said, no man takes my life, I do what? I give it. I give it. It's a great picture for me of, of God reconciling the idea of the jealousy of God and hopefully it provides for us a <coughs> motivation to maybe reconsider some of the things we say, do or approve of and maybe it plays a part, small part in a change of the heart in God's people that maybe plays a small part in the change of a direction of a nation once upon a time I think was in a covenant with God that has broke that covenant Whatever we think Israel was guilty of, we are at least uh, more. And everything he says about Israel, describing Israel, <clears throat> or Judah specifically he's talking to, uh, to Samaria and to Sodom, wow, he could say times a thousand, times ten thousand to us. Every one of them. You'd be hard-pressed to find something in Ezekiel 16 that doesn't speak to our nation. So maybe chewing on that idea is something God can use to strike a spark. Maybe get a fire burning. Because the exile that the children of Israel faced in Babylon we're looking at. And I would give you children to lead you. Yeah, and I'm not saying that, that it's hopeless or that God can't change it, but boy, I have a hard time just not seeing anything other than the judgment of God coming on a nation that needs to repent. And as I was looking at the jealousy of God, it just, that voice got louder. You guys just get what I get. So, if God's pounding on my ears, I figure, maybe we ought to listen. So, I don't know. I I think it's definitely something worth chewing on and diving into. Um, I brought the book. If you guys want to look at it, you're welcome to take a look at it. I would uh, really, uh, um, recommend it, great uh, a book uh, Biblical Theology <clears throat> um, just working its way through the concept of uh, not only jealousy as an attribute of God but then godly jealousy as a reflection of us to, toward the culture and toward God ultimately so uh, uh, I'd encourage you to check it out also if you're interested um, on, uh, if you have a computer and you have iTunes I don't know how to do it if you don't so I'm sorry but if you have a computer and you have iTunes there's a thing on iTunes store called iTunes University where you can do courses that cost money I'll never send you any of those uh, you can do all that stuff on your own but there are courses that you can listen to the teaching of that are free uh, so, two of those courses that I talked about, that the guy that we just watched teaches on theology and the character of God. That's the title of the classes, Theology uh, 101, I think it is, and uh, the character of God. Eric uh, Thoinis, or I don't know how you say his name, but Eric. Uh, he does them. You can download them on your computer and watch them for free. Great source of. Kind of reemphasizing the attributes of God as we work our specifically as you work your way through through theology it's a lot of what he's dealing with in theology 101 are, are the attributes of God and the character of God uh, in that class so uh, and he's a really good teacher so he's it's not hard to to listen to or to watch their videos um, they may have audios available too if you don't want to do the videos but I download the videos and, and keep those so Um, I actually was was given this book I've been here seven years probably ten years ago by Jennifer Abel who's now Jennifer Young Uh, not that that matters to any of you guys (laughs) but uh, who was a student of Eric uh, Thoenus theology course and this was part of the coursework that he gave her and it impacted her uh, so great 10 years ago she gave it to me and uh, it's great it's a good book and a good concept to kind of spend some time chewing on okay why don't we pray and if you got a bail you can bail and if you got questions feel free sound good uh, Jace you want to pray sure. dear father we just uh, thank you for the that uh, you would just put that uh, spirit of jealousy for your for your name in our hearts, Father, and
1: it would be something that uh, guides the things that we do, not just <coughs> the things that we say. Lord, it would
0: uh, it would be uh, that jealousy would manifest itself in the, the people that we talk to, and uh, the things that uh, we stand up for. Lord. And so we just uh, we thank you for tonight, and we thank you that uh, you want to be known, Father, and that you reveal yourself to us through your word. Praise you and we praise your word and I pray that it'd be away up to our feet this week for you Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, guys. I don't know what to do with it. I have no idea if it worked or not, but